Okay. Well, I'll have to figure out a way around it. I've got it. Got the I mean, it sounds fine now. Good, good. I've got it as far from my face as possible. In fact, let me find the phone. And I'm <laughs> I've going got to... it as far from my face as possible. It's true. In fact, I'm going Technology. to try. Technology. <laughs> yeah. It works. Uh, okay. So give me a second here. All right. Greetings, Wadnods. Welcome, citizens. Welcome to Troll. <laughs> We're going well already. <laughs> Wadnods, what you, what you won't hear, because I will edit this out, but you'll hear Jeff's laugh, so you'll wonder what's going on, is I completely screwed up the name of this podcast before, but you won't even hear that, thankfully. Phew. Hi, I'm Graham McMillan. I'm one of the hosts of this, and the other one is... Jeff Lester. Hello, everyone. He's having fun. Drog is where we talk about Judge Dredd. We do the complete case files. We are currently on volume seven. We've been doing this for six months already. We've read some amazing comics. Yes. Some genuinely stunning comics. In this episode, we're doing, like I said, volume seven. That's progs 322 through 375 from 1983 to 1984. And because I've missed it already, I'm supposed to tell you where we're broadcasting from. We're broadcasting from Bella Lugosi Blocks this time. Oh, nice. Nice. Jeff. I chose that one for a particular reason, and let me just let me just go into this for a second. Mm-hmm. This was the horror book, wasn't it? You know, Graham, I got to tell you, it had it. I thought that it was the comedy volume, but it definitely opens and closes with two pretty strong horror. Uh, I am. Fascinated by you calling it the comedy volume because when I said it's a horror volume, I'm not just talking about the fact that you get a werewolf story. A zombie story, and uh, there's another one. There's you're thinking of parts. you're thinking of the haunting of Sector House Nine, which is no, uh, yeah, a genius idea. Which, yeah, is also like outright like Poltergeist style story. Yeah, which makes sense because again, wasn't the Poltergeist movie about '84? Like yeah. we're in the, the same era. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, this might have been the book that gave me the existential horror of Mega City One more than any other book to this point. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Definitely. There are there's a, an entire sequence of stories called the graveyard shift mm-hmm. that is, I mean, just bleak in ways that the series has never quite been. Even though you're right, like this is a very you know comedic to an extent, but a, at least you know it. I wouldn't say it's a tragic book at all. Mm-hmm. You know, they're definitely leading into the comedy a bunch. Yeah. You have a, a three part story about a guy with a big nose, for example. You know, you you've but, got Bob and Carol and Ted and Ringo. You know, you've, yeah, yeah. You've got but, Requiem but for a heavyweight, and but there's something in this book that honestly just made me go, Mega City One is genuinely hell. Oh yeah, Mega City One is the bleakest fictional setting. Yeah, for what is, as you said, a comedy strip. This, I mean, I this book gave me the horrors, Jeff. Uh-huh. It really, this volume in particular, I was just like, oh god, this is. This is a shockingly bleak comic strip at times. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I'm really glad you mentioned Graveyard Shift because I think that that is the – even though it happens relatively early in the volume, it's kind of the hub for me uh, of – It's it's by far, I think, the the strongest sequence. Mm. What, 50-odd – comics that are collected in there here. there's actually i counted there is there's 21 stories in here which is kind of a me that's an amazingly high count for especially because like a bunch of them are are like five parts or so yeah 
Yeah, the, although some of them seem longer than they are. The number of ones that are only two or three parts, and they actually have a relatively high number of one-parters, in fact. Yes, they um, do. It's a, it's a really odd balance. Yeah. Uh, it, whereas previous volumes you've seen, you know, a lot of like two or three-parters or one-parters, and then like a 26-part story. Yes. And this you really do. You have, I think it's got two seven-parters. Mm-hmm. It's got a bunch of like three parters yep and then a lot of one parters yeah yeah exactly or, or one and two you know yeah. it, it's 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 a very odd mix mm-hmm. of, of a book mm-hmm. it, it's and but it works oh, i, I don't so. you know we've talked before about our, our our impressions reading these books and i've now read this volume three times in the last week wow and the first time I struggled. My attention was mm-hmm. not there. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the fact that it is so many stories mm-hmm. kind of screwed with my attention as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like I wasn't really into it. Mm-hmm. But reading it the second time, I I had this moment of, oh, this is actually not just good. This is amazing. This mm-hmm. is a really, really strong volume. Right. And you have things like like things I'd initially dismissed as being fluff, but fun fluff. Mm-hmm. Like honestly, the, the werewolf story. This, this, mm. The volume starts with mm-hmm. Cry of the Werewolf. First time through, I was like, you know, it's fun, but mm-hmm. it's kind of throwaway. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. But second time through, I was like, this is really strong. Like, there's actually really good craft here. And, you know, I'm getting a lot out of this, not just in Steve Dillon's art, which is oh, it's like great. lovely. It's yeah. really, really nice. Mm-hmm. But, but also, you see, it is Wagner and Grant trying something else with Dread again. Mm hmm. You know, and and, and seven, we're seven years in the strip, and they're still going. Can he do this? Mm-hmm. Can he can like can he do werewolves or or like I said, haunting of Sector House Nine? Mm-hmm. Can can it do, you know, a ghost story? Right. Can it do you know the the zombie story I, I refer to is really arsenic and old lace. Yes. Except that it's arsenic and old lace with mind controlled zombies. Yeah. Yeah. But there there is a lot of like pushing and prodding and mm-hmm. going. Can it do this? Can it do this? Mm-hmm. Or you see something like Graveyard Shift again, which isn't horror, but is in its in its structure oh really God. kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Because it is, you know, a, a, a multi-part, again, a seven-part uh, procedural where they yes. are, like, moving plots through and back. They're pushing them forward and back throughout seven parts, mm-hmm. which is, is fascinating to see them do. Yeah. You know, so there is there, there's a level of craft in this book that honestly, in first read through, I wasn't really aware of. And in second read through, I really appreciated it. Mm. And in third read through, I was like, this might be one of my favorite volumes today. Mm, interesting. Because there is so much under the surface of this one. Mm-hmm. Did you have a thing? Did you did you lose interest reading it through the first time? You know, what happened for me was was, yeah, there was a lot of picking it up and putting it down. Um, I think I might be in trouble, in fact, because un- unlike other volumes where, like, I don't know, I-, I get in like one and a half to two reads, this really was, uh, I finished my first reading, like, earlier today. And then, I was going to say, like, an hour ago. <laughs> yeah, right. Not quite that bad, but close. We really, so, yeah, so I spent a lot of today sort of, sort of quickly writing down lists and things like that. So... My impression of it was, uh, yeah, that that uh, in part because of the pacing, I would find myself being. I, I think I think the first go round, I read 
the Werewolves, the Weatherman two-parter, and the Requiem for a Heavyweight four-parter. And I read that sort of all in one go, and I looked, and I was like, oh, it's 50 pages. That's like, I was like, I'm just going to like just hop right, skip right through this. But then like Graveyard Shift is kind of, you almost can't read anything after it, even though there's a one-parter with great Kem Kennedy art suspect that is almost clearly meant is almost like a, a palate cleanser. Yeah. But yeah. Um, there's just a lot of, I, I feel, I feel that the, the, this volume to me is, I feel like this is a thing that we say every episode so you know i i could be proven wrong but this is probably the closest that i feel to reading you know quote unquote modern dread in the sense of somewhere along the time uh, in the graveyard shift which we'll have to spend a good chunk of time talking about that's where i was really like oh this is this is mega city one as i think of it in my brain you know mm -hmm. like this is they they turned it up a notch in Graveyard Shift, I think, in a way, like, when you go back and see something like uh, Block War, right? One of the things that's great about Block War is you see the the battle between the blocks, and it just starts getting bigger, bigger, and crazier, and crazier. And then you find out, of course, that people are being amped up to 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 crazy making levels by, you know, the, the, the Soviets have planted, um, uh, you know, machinery that yeah, is upping everyone's yeah. aggression levels. And so that leads right into the apocalypse war. So there's a little bit of a sense of block war is really amazing and uncanny, but it also kind of gives you a little bit of an escape hatch of like, Oh, okay. It's not supposed to be that insane, but What's happening in Graveyard Shift is there's stuff that is particularly in the later half when the block, you know, when the war fights breaks out between, is it Carol Channing or Carol, what is it, Carol Jean Monroe? Who who the hell is it's, the block? It's Carol Monroe, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is Carol Monroe. And so it turns into this, uh, you know, it, it just horrifically, yeah, Carol Monroe is coming down and then in the course of doing it, it ends up actually taking out Vince St. Clair as well. So St. Clair block goes down. So it's this huge 70,000 people die in the course of just that one event. And everyone's kind of – all of the citizens are incredibly blasé about it. Yeah, there's there's actually – you know, we'll, we'll get more into Graveyard Shift because I think – I, like I, I wouldn't be surprised if it takes up the majority of this episode just because yeah. there's so much there. Right. Dread even points out that yeah. like they think it's just letting off steam. Yes, like seventy thousand people have. They slaughter seventy thousand and call it letting off steam. Madness, sheer madness, sheer madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is when even dread. Yes, takes a moment to be like this. This is is like unthinkable. That's what what I was saying when I think about the existential horror of Mega City One. Right. Like there becomes a point, and it is in Graveyard Shift, mm -hmm. where you realize how oppressive it has to be to live there. You know, it's funny because I felt like. In our last episode of Drock, you spent a lot of time uh, – not a lot, but you had said some stuff like the judges are clearly kind of overwhelmed with what they're dealing with and things aren't quite in their control and and kind of that Mega City 1 was uh, kind of, you know, 
holding on by threads. And I really, while reading this, I was like, I wonder if Graham had read ahead by that point, because this volume really struck me as the one where the mega city one citizens have become those sorts of crazy, irrational children, but amped up to a you know, a much higher factor than what we were talking about in the earlier episodes where they're just like crazy for fads, but the fad thing is fascinating. Mm -hmm. The fad thing is, is genuinely like there's three or four stories here where the plot is a craze overtakes mega city one and makes people commit crime. And it's actually called out in this, in the script of one of them. Yeah. That people are committing crimes because of the craze. Yeah. They would otherwise not commit crimes, but now they are because of the craze. Yeah. And like, that's, there are many ways in which Mega City One and Judge Dredd feels like a, a, a glimpse into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one in the graveyard shift where there's a sniper who is shot by one of the people he's shooting at. Yes. Um, which honestly was like, you know, okay, 1984, John Wagner and Alan Grant. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. feels a bit scarily on the nose. Oh. Um, but there's the idea that, like, essentially there's, like, mimetic crime going on yes keeps coming up in this volume and is again when you read the collection mm-hmm. which is different from reading a weekly yes when you read the collection it does become cumulative yeah yeah you know where you're just like oh god it's another time where we're like you know pies in the face are one thing but then you know there's there's this other crime and it's more serious right or that you know I, and it be, it feels more and more like mega city one is not under anyone's control yes yeah, yeah, like yeah. Like the judges are – because I would say in, in volume six, the one we did last time, mm-hmm. it's just after the Apocalypse War and right. you see continued stories where the judges are basically, we don't like this, so we're going to outlaw it. Right. But there's still a sense the judges are, even if barely, they're mm-hmm. still in control. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And this one just feels continually like the judges aren't in control. Well – I, I, Like, you know, really are are – maintaining order almost by luck uh, <laughs> like the, the, yeah. the whole the 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 dave storyline mm-hmm. towards the end portrait of a president right which is a th- I, I i like i love that story i genuinely do listeners for who aren't reading along with us it's a three-part story where an orangutan becomes mayor of mega city one mm-hmm. kind of by accident mm-hmm like pretty much by continually just failing upwards yeah. in a series of, of, you know, it's a Rube Goldberg-esque story mm-hmm. where, you know, unlikely thing happens, which leads to unlikely thing two, which leads to unlikely thing three. But um, an, an orangutan becomes the mayor of next day one. Yeah. yeah, yeah you know, yeah. unlike Shred's in favor. Mm-hmm. Shred's like, he, he can't be any worse than the last guy. Yeah. And, and it's funny, mm-hmm. but... It's also kind of horrific, mm-hmm. you know. And actually, there's I I'm, I feel like I'm scattershot today, and and I apologize for that. But this leads to something else that I saw in this book, and I want to know if I'm seeing it or or if it's not there. Mm. Did you get Wagner and Grant having basically disdain for people in this? Let's, we'll see. That's there, it. There, it yeah, there's that mm-hmm. that story, and also there's the story about the what they end up calling like the first outer space slum. Yes. Which, like, I'm really disturbed by that story. It is, yeah. 
high society, it is really, really disturbing. Yeah. The plot of that is basically there is a satellite in space which is being, which is uh, essentially a second city that is only the rich are living there. Yeah. And it is, you know, it's it's the best of everything and only the rich are living there. But there is a Mega City One program where those who have been displaced by the Apocalypse War are being pushed into locations they otherwise would not be able to afford. Right. The, the owner of the satellite essentially tries to refuse and Dredd is like, nope, these guys are coming in. Yeah. And the quote-unquote punchline is once you let the riffraff in, they destroy everything. Yeah. Yep. It is. It is literally. Uh, this is why we can't have good things. Story yes. from 1984. You know, but there's, there's something so cruel isn't the right word. Yeah. But but there's something really disturbing about that story for me. Oh yeah. And and it goes along with the 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 orangutan becomes mayor story. Mm-hmm. And honestly, all of the craze stories as well, mm-hmm. which is the the populace, the masses can't be trusted yes um i think i think one of the things that uh that i think would also um help you uh focus uh, what i was thinking you were going to mention is uh the the one parter called bob's law which is which which i i I love but it's also maybe the cynical thing that's ever appeared in dread yeah so it starts off with because of the apocalypse war and and things being destroyed the, they sit down and, and reorganize Mega City One with reclassifications, which it's, you know, the first two pages is literally Judge Barrett, like, laying out the in completely incomprehensible terms what's happening where. And then on top of it, what is amazing, and this is this really is so perfect, is the people who are like, you know, screw you, I'm not moving to Sector 290 for nobody. And it's like, no, but that's what we're trying to tell you. Yeah, All we're you're doing not is, moving. Yeah, we're just renumbering it as 290. Yeah, we're to, we've changed it to Sector 211. And he's like, that's a dirty trick. So you stole my sector? So, like, of course, riots are breaking out. Again, this is it, it is an even more cynical take on, on the classic uh, escalator to nowhere. You know, the Mega City 1 is Springfield really comes back with this one. Except... There's the there's Bob's law, which is all it takes is for one one person to do something stupid and all the rest are sure to join in. And so they're trying to figure out, like, you know, because there's all this writing. What are we going to do about it? Because they're literally like, we can't put everyone away. We're, we can't we don't even have enough isocubes for it. So they break out Bob's second law when all else fails, bribe them and so they roll out this whole new thing where it's like you just everyone just has to stay where they are and call it by the new number and everyone gets 100 credits and everyone's like for 100 credits they can call the sector Fred and then someone was like I never liked 400 anyways you know and then the signs are like sector 10 and proud of it uh but of course it's 42 billion credits to pay everyone so the judges have to open up a new tax a sector relocation tax. No, what they end up, it was a clean air tax, a once only payment of a hundred credits. And then they bump it up to 105 to cover the administration costs, which is Bob's third law. What the justice department giveth justice department could just as easily take away. That's six pages of hardcore cynicism about public 
life. Um, and God help me. The problem is, Graham, it's not wrong. Like, I mean, that's I am deeply depressed by it. But living in San Francisco, which is undergoing crisis after crisis after crisis, we have the NIMBYs and the YIMBYs involved in crazy wars over new housing all the time. And so we do have a law set up that um, any housing complex that is put up has to give like 15% has to be affordable housing, or maybe it's 20%. And housing people weren't building as a result of it. And then it was like, oh, okay, well, as long as you give the money to the city for a fund, that would be the appropriate amount for that 20% so that we can build the fully affordable housing. Cause of course it was, it was totally like high society. They were like, if we build this and then we make it affordable, the riffraff are going to move in and no one's going to want to live there and we're going to lose money. Okay. Just pay us the city and we'll take care of the building, the hundred percent affordable housing elsewhere. Everyone's happy, except, of course, the city has been sitting on literally tens of millions of dollars that have been paid out to it that they're dragging their feet on building the affordable housing for because they don't want to be on the hook for whatever, all the cost overruns and everything. So in other words, I feel like both of those things, I had the, every part where you're like, this is hugely cynical. I'm like, this is this feels horrifically like prescient. You know, like maybe oh, not no, prescient. Maybe it's I, uh, I, yeah. You know, no, I I agree. Again, it feels very very prescient. Yeah, but it's just there is something about this volume in particular yeah. where it. Well, there's two things. One, this volume is very clearly the volume where Wagner and Grant realize that they are as, if not more, interested in the Citizens Mega City one than they are in Dread right now. Mm-hmm. There's even the last part of uh, – sorry, the last page of the first episode of the the story about the guy with the big nose actually has a caption that's like, what's this got to do with Judge Dredd? Nothing. Yes. Yeah. Like it actually leaves it out. And mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the the Weatherman story, the yes. story in this, doesn't even feature Dredd mm-hmm. until like the last two pages of the second part. Mm-hmm. Like Dredd is in the opening action sequence and then disappears for like 10 pages straight. Yep. Yep, and yep. there are other judges. Yes. But but Dredd is gone until the very end where he basically just comes in and is like, well, this is a mess. Like Dredd becomes in multiple stories in this volume, not just a secondary character, an unimportant character. Yeah. yeah you know? Yeah. But so so Wagner and Grant are, are realizing that the citizens are of at least equal interest. Mm-hmm. But simultaneously, it feels like they hate the citizens of Mega City One. Right. Right. Well, I th- I think this is this is where that sort of the the description of Wagner and Grant and their notoriously uh you know, dark sense of humor really does come in cuz it is like you said, it's funny and it's bleak, but it is it's also um it's uh it you know, there's there's that weird stripe of misanthropy that sort of runs through I think particularly through a British culture and I don't know, maybe British comedy culture that that it really gets played up where maybe because of the, the class structure, you know, once you stop picking a class to root for and you're kinda like, Oh, they're all fuck ups, you know. 
depending on how how big a canvas you play that out on, you know, it it can come off as as pretty pretty misanthropic. What's amazing about Dread the this volume is a they're able to back it up with just in take things to their insane over the top limits that that again something like you know the thing that i keep using as my touchstone the simpsons is um, it's amazing to me that the simpsons is still you know five to six years away before it even starts you know and this is this is heavily underway as being just you know um uh I mean, brutally funny, but sometimes it'll settle for being just brutal, you know? One of the things I think fascinating about this volume, too, is also you mentioned the werewolf story and you mentioned the craft in these pieces. One of the things that we we can delve into a little bit easily is how much, um, even when Dread isn't a character in the stories, again, Mega City 1 is... But it's amazing how much world building they'll throw into even just the most dashed off piece here. So as each thing goes, like there, it, it's it's like one of those like uh, absurdly huge juggernauts that the uh, that the Jews capture in Rumble in the mm-hmm. Jungle. You know, it's everything is even when it's just a, a meager one part story. Things are moving along. There's so much momentum in this volume. And whether that's just them, you know, just throwing, dashing off fabulous story ideas and then weaving it into world building for the judge's world or something specific about Mega City One. Like there's something where the, the, everything is so organic that there's no, like Wagner and Grant are no longer, I guess, there's nothing left for that. They don't need to build anything. They're just building on things and in a way that is pretty just stunning. So something like the werewolf story, which I do think is incredibly well done, but also I was like, this is pretty disposable, you know? Well, exactly, because you're like, it's just becoming a werewolf. Yeah. Like, you know it's not going to stick. Like, yeah. it's it, this, and also... It feels kind of ludicrous, which is fascinating to me because yeah. at this point, like, we've already had Judge Death. So why does the werewolf story seem so weird? Yeah. Like, yeah. it shouldn't, and yet it does. Right. There is something about it. We're like, this, you know, this just feels incongruous and, and, and you know, kind of throw away as a result. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It does. There's something about it when it gets started that you're just like, nah, fucking whatever. Right. And then when you get to the part where it's like Judge Dread, go- Dread goes into the Undercity and then he's cruising his bike along like abandoned Times Square. Yeah. It's, it's just like, okay, so they're just, you know, there's something where even when they take something that is incredibly sort of, for lack of a better term, trite, they really can pump it up with these. Uh, it's amazing what they decide to pump up either with visuals or, again, the world building. They make... Dread becomes a werewolf. You really think, of course, that's not going to be the end of him, but there is going to be a little bit of a, how does he get out of this one? And then, uh, you know, it turns out that there's another judge down there because they send judges on long walks to the Undercity as well, which I was like, 
I've never really heard that, but it's such a it. If it's a cheat, it's such a good one. And... Yeah, I, I I had exactly the same response. Where I was like, no, they go in the walks the cursed earth. Yeah, and then it's like, but why? Like, of course they can go in the walk somewhere else. Yeah, like right. Sure, like, if you actually stop to think about it, you're like, why couldn't they? Yeah, yeah. Why yeah. and and why wouldn't they put it on the? Wouldn't they have it on you know someplace like the Undercity? So. They really one of the that was one of those things where they managed to do it just exact exactly right where it's like oh you've never heard of this before but but there's so much generosity with what they're in the way in which they do it you I actually, I actually meant to have have we seen the underworld city before because my first thought was it was new and then I thought but didn't we see the undercity in the city the yeah. day of the earth the law died yes we did. We did. We did see that. We did see Undercity, but not at the same scale. Like, no. It, yeah. It, it, it actually, it, before it seemed like just the ruins of a city. And this yes. time they're explicit. It's New York. Yeah. Like you see Times Square. Yeah. Exactly. And it's called that in the text. There's no way to, to avoid it. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's just this. Uh, yeah. Hmm? I was going to say, it's funny you say that, but also in the Bob and Carol and Ted and Ringo story. Mm-hmm. You get the David Bellamy joke where he he says, "Oh yeah, the nuclear bomb that destroyed what used to be America." Yes, and again, it's 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 a line, it's a throwaway line. Yeah, but you're like, oh, you know, and by this point, we've been told about the atomic war, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but there's something about the line, "the nuclear bomb that destroyed what we used to call America," that that does kind of stop you in its tracks. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh shit, of course, right. Because nobody thinks of this is America anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's it is. Uh, and again, Bob and Carol and Ted and Ringo, which really is the classic, like dread. Like here's something that's good, you know, something to charm the eight year olds and something to charm the drunks. You know what I mean? And it really is uh, goofy and acerbic, but it. But again, it works a ridiculous amount of world building in there. And uh, and weirdly, and I wasn't sure if this was intentional or not, it's world building that kind of seems to me like it's sort of semi-retcons over Pat Mills's contribution, you know? I doesn't mean, it, I, I, you know, the son see, of Satanist no, I, thing? I would say no. Yeah. I don't think it does as much as it builds on it. Mm-hmm. It feels like it feels like Wagner and Grant basically reclaiming it. Okay, because it it not only brings in the Son of Satanist stuff, but also by talking about again mentioning the nuclear bomb destroyed America, mm-hmm. it's referencing the atomic uh, war and the the last president of the United States that's in Mills's Cursed Earth as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, if anything, it feels like a shout out that is not papering over. It's reminding people that stuff is there. I thought that's what I thought too, but there's something very strange about the way that the dinosaurs are presented in the in the timeline, where it's like it m- matches up, but but again, they sort of leave out the Jurassic Park angle of the dinosaur part. You know what I mean? They leave out the park part, and I'm like, that's a weird. Anyway, you're right. I think I think it is more of a a reclamation than a retcon, but it was kind of fascinating. They're just at that. It, it's a very it's very odd that it's a story. And again, to to do a quick plot synopsis for people who aren't reading, it's literally a 
two, three part story. It's a very short story. It's four. Uh, yeah, four parts. Mm-hmm. Is it? Is it yeah, that long? It again, is. The, mm-hmm. Again, these stories are deceptively. Yeah. They're deceptive in like, the general. I don't know if you noticed, but midway through this book, the stories go to seven pages an episode as opposed to six. Mm-hmm. Where they've been sort of semi-alternating. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but it's it's a story where in basically the circus comes to town, but the circus has dinosaurs. Yeah. And robot uh, handyman uh, gets upset at the treatment of dinosaurs and lets the dinosaurs out. Well, yeah. No, it, uh, it's literally, yeah, like that, you said, it's that, a children's book. Basically, yeah. yeah, that's basically it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The, you know, one of the dinosaurs gets killed, but three of them escape because Judge Dredd lets them escape. Yeah. He actually, he actually says... You know, let them out. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're, simultaneously, they're not our problem. But also, it's very clear in the final episodes, they've not done anything wrong. Yeah. They've just been dinosaurs. Right. <laughs> like, the problem are the people who are bringing dinosaurs into a city. Yes. Yeah. But you're right. It, it works on multiple layers. And a lot of these stories work on multiple yes. layers. Yes. Yeah. Almost all yeah, of them do. There's so much that mm-hmm. has... You know, you can be as I was when I was reading these, like, you know, nine, ten years old and seeing them as straight up adventure stories. Mm-hmm. But then there's all this other stuff to dig into. Mm-hmm. Like in, in almost every single story, you know, with I was going to say, like, exceptions like the, pardon me, the Citizen Schnoz story mm-hmm. about about the, the guy getting a big nose. But even there, Jeff. You notice that the guy who gets the nose is Johnny Storm and his mother is Crystal, right? Yeah, I was wondering about that so much. I was like, <laughs> what is going on there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. is happening there? Yeah. And for, like, his dad dresses up like Batman? Right. Like, what? what and is his easy there? rider. And his easy rider. Easy glider. Easy glider, right. Sorry. Is easy glider. Yeah, no, no, no. No, there's a weird superhero like, thing. Yeah, the, they're in yeah, there. That, there's the mm-hmm. G-Man. The, yes. The, the bodyguards who look like Superman. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, like, there's weird stuff throughout this book. Yeah. But there's always an extra layer. Always, yeah, an extra layer. Sometimes the shoutouts are really obvious. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the shoutouts feel pointed. Sometimes the shoutouts feel really obscure. Yeah, like in in the graveyard shift, there's multiple shoutouts to Larry Hackman and Dallas. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. like there's a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also it ends with a shout out to like a, an author, the, the jumper. Yeah, on, Arthur Nussler block. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, you know who that is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the guy who wrote, ah, shit, not just Ghost in the Machine, but, uh, ah, what is it, Darkness at Noon or something like that? But, but the guy living on his block decides not to kill himself. Yes. In a strip published in the same year that he killed himself. Oh, shit, really? Oh, I yes. didn't catch that. Oh, holy Christ. Right? Wow. I'd also like there's Phil Roth block mm. at one point. <laughs> I miss that. That's fabulous. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like there's all weird. There's always something else. Like there's, it's amazing that and a lot of it, I think is Wagner Grant entertaining themselves. Oh yeah, I think so. Do you know what I mean? Like because they are churning out so much material at this point. Mm-hmm. They're doing Dread Weekly. Every single strip in this book mm-hmm. is written by Wagner Grant. But at the same time, they're also doing Robo Hunter, Strontium Dog, Ace Trucking Company, Hell Trekkers, like all these different things at the same time. And that's just for 2018. Right. They're writing for other comics at the same time. Well, are so the Dread strips running at this point too? 
Yeah, the yeah. newspaper strips are running at the same time. Like, so they're they're turning an exceptional amount of material out. Yeah. At, at, at this point, so I think a lot of it is literally them entertaining themselves, mm-hmm. you know, like literally dropping in jokes that only they will get. Mm-hmm. Like um, the end of Sudden Schnoz, uh, the the guy gets a Rob Smith nose. Mm. That's Robin Smith, the 2008 art editor. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Right? So, you know, there really are, you know, small jokes right. that only they will get. They're to entertain themselves. But they're not all small jokes. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the references to, you know, this writer about a totalitarian society who has killed himself, but the guy who lives in his block decides he's not going to kill himself that night. Yeah, right. You know? And that's not just an in-joke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's there's there is so much to unpick yeah. that it's. I mean, it, again, I talked before about like coming through a second time. I realized like the the level of craft here, mm-hmm. but there's so much going on in these comics. Well, and I I want to give a special shout out to the two part Weatherman uh story because I think that again, sort of in that weird this. <laughs> This time I was not high when I when I read the story, but in the same way that I'm like, oh, yeah, OK, here's our little tucked in manifesto. The Weatherman is a two part story that it like you said, it opens up with a Judge Dredd in an action sequence. But the action sequence is comical and ridiculous, like right out of the blue, like because of the weather that is running rampant in the wake of the apocalypse war. um, you know, the freak changes in weather, like dread literally gets pulled up by a twister and he, he actually like handcuffs, uh, the, the, the perp that to, um, like a parking meter or something. The, the perp stays to the ground dread, like, you know, flies up into the, is flying away, uh, pulled away by a twister and literally says, wait there, creep. I'll be back. Then manages to like, somehow break his fall with a flagpole and landing on another perp. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's such classic slapstick. Like it's so ridiculously broad, those three pages. And ends with a literal punchline where yeah. the the guy is at the flying squad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so, and then it moves into, the ridiculous Carl Heinz Pilchards in tomato sauce Claterman and um, Which is the greatest name. Yes, it is. Uh and so so I have to say I feel like the rest of the story goes on to be uh, essentially because you know Wagner and Grant and Iskara do the apocalypse war. It is pretty goddamn amazing and I'm sure people are going to are kind of bugging him like when are you going to do another one of these like when are you going to like you know and on top of this it's it's this is happening in this is like 84 right so like alan moore's moving into ascension you know this sort of bearded madman who like claterman is like out to make like the greatest masterwork ever right and even manages to get approved by the judges because no one's like you know, paying much attention to him where it's like, oh, he's got it. Pitts Claterman has composed another symphony. Hopefully it's better than his last 12 robotic chickens locked inside a piano. Yeah. Easy listening. It wasn't. So Claterman 
creates his quote unquote masterpiece, which is literally all the glories of nature. And basically everyone dies. And then at the end of it, you know, of course he's like, well, that's fine. It was, you know, my biggest performance. People will be talking about it forever. And they're, they're literally like, who's going to talk? Cause they point out all the dead drowned bodies. But to me, it's again, just this very goofy piece of self-important destructive, you know, self-important art that is about the destructiveness of mankind and essentially, you know, the apocalypse war, which we saw happen with it destroyed, you know, mega city one and had all this brutal suffering. You see it squeezed down into, you know, a two part prog, uh, that, that is sheer, like 90% Bugs Bunny, Looney Tunes level humor. And to me, that's part of why I'm like, the rest of this volume is like, we're doing horror stories, we're doing dinosaur stories, we're doing an orangutan runs for mayor stories. Like, it's a little bit of the, don't take it too seriously. You know, like when you, you were the one who introduced us and you had it at Bella Lugosi block. I was thinking about introducing this um if I had had the option, I would have introduced us as coming live from Kilgore Trout Block because <laughs> in this sort of – Like Vanguard would approve of this. Very much so. Very much so. You know, it's it's the that Vonnegut line about putting um, sugar coatings on bitter pills. You know, I think, I think there's a lot of uh, – um, you know, there's, there's, there's like really – harsh truths wrapped up inside some of the absurdity and when they get bored of that they they wrap some you know they fold that they put a bitter pill on a you know a bitter coating on a sugar pill every once in a while but for the most part it's the other way around in this volume you know it's funny you say that because the next story after weatherman is the the yes for heavyweight mm -hmm. which is another fatty story yes I, we've talked before about how uncomfortable fatties are as a concept yeah. now mm -hmm. um and this the, this this storyline feels very much almost doubling down on that yeah but also oddly daring the reader to wonder how seriously or how empathetic wagner grant are mm -hmm. because you get moments of not tragedy per se Mm -hmm. But every time that another character will make fun of the fatties and the fatties dying, mm -hmm. um, the Charlie, the the main villain, the the the, the Svengali of the of the fatties, mm -hmm. like gets that really upset. Mm -hmm. Like, don't be so insensitive. That fat slob was like a son to me. He says at one point, yeah, attacking the guy, or or at the the end of the the story, mm -hmm. you know, he he's he's really upset that. That the guy died, yes, and, and and is aware that like he basically died for him, mm -hmm. even as he's like you know haha like now this guy has you know has is made me the, the heavyweight champion of the world haha right like he still has you know he's still upset oh very much so he did, he yeah. did a ton for me but it, it was too much he's dead mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it's it's this weird thing where it's like Wagner Grant are clearly playing it for laughs like yeah. these these are these are people who get appetites in juicers and try and eat their managers yeah they're so ravenous or, or like it even starts the guy tried to eat his bed and yes died he 
eat the bedpost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a, a riot at one point where all the fatties kill the judges just because they trample them. Yes. And they're so fat. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, where are the fatties rioting? In the fucking concentration camp that they're in. Yes. You know, right. and the, the, there's a scene where you see the judges check out the, the fatties who have gone underneath 300 pounds and say outright, it's not even worth doing this. They're going to go out and eat and they'll be back in tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, yep. the horrors of Mega City One. Yeah. Like there are two separate concentration camps in this volume, Jeff. Yeah, that's true. There's You're the fatties totally right. and there's the beauties. Mm-hmm. That's like, right. There's two separate concentration camps in this volume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so you really do get, uh, like you said, like it's, it's, Tonally, like the, the Wagner and Grant are are just they're going for the whiplash here. Yeah, they really like, are. It's funny, here's the concentration camp. Yeah, it's funny, but this guy's actually dead. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, and that's it. Rec- it's called it's called Requiem for Heavyweight, which is a joke on you know Rod Serling's pathetic, uh, you know, bathos ridden classic of you know a washed up fighter. And it takes all the boxing movie cliches and puts and wraps them in fat jokes and yet does not play the, you know, the, the noble sacrifice of the, the guy who does the goes the distance and sacrifices his life. It's not entirely played for a joke. So there's such this weird um, I mean, it's 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 like you said, there's the whiplash there, but it's it's amazing how. Uh, they how much mileage they get from we are going we're you know we're not taking ourselves or our pop culture terribly seriously but on the flip side we're going to take it more seriously than we take human nature unless it comes to you know acts of kindness or generosity or I mean pyromania is an insane story and it's just a one-parter where someone hits dread in the face uh with a pie and he you know i i forget what he does he like doesn't you know break he just arrests the guy and everyone finds that so hilarious that you know the mega city one is off on another fad of the judges and being dread hit with pies. for it which i love i love that the other judges are like couldn't you've just ducked yes <laughs> And, and what I think is great is that the judges are really put out by it and Dredd doesn't care. Kind of like with the dinosaurs in a way, like he doesn't care about being made like that idea of him looking ridiculous. He's like, it doesn't matter. That's harmless. Or even the thing where it's like the orangutan becomes, um, you know, mayor. There's a little, there's a little bit in here where Dredd is j- sort of just, in the same way that the weatherman's making this statement of like art doesn't have to be serious the things that are so sufficiently ridiculous in this story that dread more or less tacitly or specifically approves of them as long as it's sort of not getting people killed or it's not people you know well there's there's actually a line in the story about the pies where the judges are basically like well it better pies than bullets yes exactly and that may be a dreadline. I forget if it is, but I think that it's one of those things where even when they're annoyed, he's like, I don't care. And it's like the dinosaurs, let them go. He's like, they, maybe they'll do better. So, um, so, the, it, so the graveyard shift, I think, in a way becomes even more of a 
um, a, a, a startling piece of work within this volume because it's surrounded by so much um, frivolity and and what's great about the graveyard shift is how much it mixes the absurdity and the insanity uh, to the point where each becomes each. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's... Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's very very true. There's something about the tonal mix in the graveyard shift where it actually becomes a mix. Mm-hmm. Like you're not quite sure which is which. Yeah. You know, and I, I, and I think that's a. I think it's intentional, but b. I think it's something that they keep all the like up all the way up to the last chapter. Mm-hmm. You know, where it, there is, for example, a, a serial killer in the graveyard shift. Yeah, that is initially played for laughs. Yes, because he he leaves behind left hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and they're like, "Ha, oh, it's lefty." And then they catch him in the end, and he's like, "They're like, we arrest you for sixty-six murder." And he's like, "It's a hundred and twenty something." Yeah. Right, you know, and there's some, there is something about that where you're like, hmm, and he's trying to do it to get like the record, yeah, to, to get the record, record and get the workers. attention. Yeah, no, I mean that's and it. Again, mm-hmm. there, there's some, there's that moment of people of Mega City One are really fucked up. Well, the people of Mega City One are entirely fucked up, but they are fucked up in a way that is horrifyingly familiar to anyone living in America in 2019. Because yes, no, exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. Did you expect when we started this how oddly, disturbingly specific and familiar Judge Dredd would be? I, I, I really didn't. Oh, interesting. At least not for the early stories. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I, I think by the time you get to things like you know America and and like maybe the you know the nineties and especially like you know the more recent Dreads. Mm-hmm. Like they are very purposely going, okay, haha, we're you know we're making a reference, and occasionally you know Dread is always specifically called out particular things, right? Yeah. But I didn't expect to see like the, you know a sniper shot by by a victim with a gun. Yes. Right. I didn't expect to see concentration camps that made me like all too aware of what is happening. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Like sh- like that, I did not expect. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't expect to see like uh, uh see, like mimetic warfare, mimetic crimes, right? And like, and get it in a way that I feel like I shouldn't get it. Like, I feel like it's bad that I understand, right? When people are like doing the crazes, even though it makes them commit crimes, I'm like, sure, like that's like, you know, if people could do shit and it would be trending on Twitter, they do it. Like, I, it's, right. it's disturbing to me. Yeah. That I that it makes so much sense. Yeah, the stuff it should be ridiculous. Right, right. You know, or as we mentioned in Graveyard Shift, the fact that you've got a a, a person who goes on a shooting spree, and his most important thing is that he wants the record and he wants to make sure they get his name right. Which again, kind of old hat from anyone who was even listening to what Family Snapshot by Peter Gabriel, which was based on something even earlier, but. It's creepy how one of the things that actually struck me was I'm not I'm I almost wanted to, you know, shoot up the wait what signal into the sky and summon Matt Turrell because I felt like the Super Bowl two parter is absurdly prescient about I mean, about football, like 
in the Super Bowl, which is two-parter, which is, again, largely paid for, played for laughs, um, and there's some amazing structural underpinning going on there that just blows my mind, uh, Dredd and his partner um, investigate death threats that are being made against one of the Super Bowl teams, and in the course of investigating the team... Dread and Dread and his uh, apprentice end up arresting half of the team for crimes that they've committed, such that they can't play in the big game, and then end up losing devastatingly. Uh, well, well, also they're not investigating their team; they're defending the team. Well, see, that's it. They're supposed to defend the team, but everything right, everything that they investigate to uncover stuff just uncovers more crimes on the part of the players, and so. It's weirdly for me, I don't follow any sports whatsoever, but the thing that does occasionally catch my eye is the ongoing problem that uh, all sports leagues, but particularly it seems like for whatever reason, the National Football League has with football players committing ridiculous crimes and the extent to which the teams try and cover them up to which they can so they can keep playing or it comes out. And again, is, you know, ridiculous that they are, you know, uh, being allowed to be anywhere near the sport. I'm like, that's such a such a I feel like such a talking point in sports and has been for a while that seeing it satired, you know, 20 some odd years earlier is is was really startling to me. Like it's it's odd how much of. Uh, really, the last couple of volumes have felt ahead of their time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you know. We're, and again, it's all done in nineteen eighty, what two through eighty four, right? And it's all done as a, you know, oh, this is ridiculous, right? Like this, 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 this is just beyond the pale. Yeah. And yet, you read it now, and you're like, shit. Okay. Yep. Like I, I actually believe all of this could happen right yeah i mean honestly an orangutan becoming mayor sure right. i'm sure i could google right now and find that animals have become mayors in american cities sure well i oh no did you read that story about um see you're gonna tell me something's happened right well not about yeah, fact, that I literally i literally just googled animal mayor and the first thing that comes up is a story called four animals that run for mayor and one <laughs> Do you want to check the years on that? Maybe one of them was the inspiration for Dave. Uh, well, I see. That was uh, – actually, I looked it up on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Let's see. 1990 – yes. In 1981, Bosco the dog was elected mayor of Sunol, California. Mm, yeah. See, I kind of had that thing. I like, eh, you know, <laughs> I thought that it was a case of, you a know. A goat one. In Texas, mm -hmm. in 1967, a foot powder won <laughs> in Ecuador. <laughs> a, a brown mule apparently won a Republican precinct seat in 1938. <laughs> a Billy Goats won a city councillor position in 1922 in Brazil. See, this is we had. Uh, this is the thing that I sometimes wonder, Graham. Is as part of me is like, how much of this is prescient and how much of this is just human nature? You know. Yeah. How much, exactly. How much of this is prescient? And how much of this is 
us not being aware of the past. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Like, I mean, we all had, you know, people who made idiots of themselves to get on TV was clearly a thing long sure. before reality yeah. TV was invented. And, and I should say, like, uh, the, the Citizen Schnau story. Yeah. They explicitly calls out, like, did you will not know this because you're American and not of a certain age. But the t- the host of Just Plain Stupid, the show that uh, mm. that he's watched, mm-hmm. is Bruce Forsyth, the British television host. Mm. Like it, it's not a name, but it's Bruce Forsyth, the television host. Right. Uh, the same way that the the um, David Baloney, mm-hmm. the the uh, nature reporter in Bob Carroll and Ted and, and Ringo, is David Bellamy, the British television host. Thank you. Like very very clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know they're they they are there's things that are like legitimately just like not even metaphor, not even parody. Mm-hmm. It's the, the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, so there, there's a lot that's here that is kind of, you know, to the extent that Wagner and Grant are exaggerating societal ills that have always been around for laughs. Uh, and therefore, you know, add 25 years and one or two of them are going to be sort of uncomfortably on the mark. Um, what I sort of enjoy about it is that strange, uncanny valley feeling. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the last oh, three plus years have been pretty hard for America. And that that reoccurring feeling of watching uh, The Onion basically come true is something that a lot of people yeah. have remarked on <laughs> on social media Somehow it's it for me it's both more satisfying and a little uh more disquieting when it happens in dread because these stories are so old but also there's a, as a result there's such a strange uncanny valley feeling that it's like I both recognize it and don't like it's it's yeah. like yeah. dead on but because the rest of the context is so um different uh it 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 gives me it just gives you that weird sort of um like I said, the uncanny vow is the only way that I can think to explain. It. Like the willies, but arguably in a good way? I don't know. Um No, it, it it's it's a it's a uh it's disorienting, right? Mm-hmm. Because it it is this moment of you know it's satire or parody or beyond the pale, but you also read it as truth. Right. Right? Like that's that's what the uncanny valley is as well. Mm-hmm. The 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 feeling of simultaneously reading something as real, right, and knowing that it is not. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, reading it as real and fake at the same time is is I think yeah. that's it. Yeah, is that you're literally getting the feedback for both of them at the same moment, and so it's it's a very strange uh, experience, you know, because I'm only used to seeing it and dealing with it in one way. And here in this volume, like uh, the the funhouse mirror factor has been has been amped up to the way where it is. Um, it makes you both giddy and maybe a little bit stomach sick at the same time, you know, and it's uh, and yet the thing that's amazing is it's I think that's exactly how they want you to feel. You know, that is exactly yeah. the but, kind but of. But again, 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 we're having this. It does read differently in a collection. Mm-hmm. Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and that's something that is also not a problem, but something that I'm aware of when we're reading these. Yes. Right? 
because there is the cumulative effect. There right. is the effect of you realize that we are dealing with two different concentration camps simultaneously, mm -hmm. which honestly you wouldn't realize if you're reading it in the, the progs as they were published because those stories were published a year apart. Right, right. You know, like you would really have to remember stuff. And also those stories are one of five stories in each comic. Yes. You know, you're reading this and you're also reading, fuck, I don't know, a Rogue Trooper yeah. and Nemesis right. and Halo Jones and something, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so you don't have the same level of recall that you do when you read it as a, as a collection. Right, right. But reading as a collection makes all of this feel much more like this is an overwhelming volume. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think you so. It's the point where yeah. you get through um, in terms of like the, the number of stories, you start with the werewolves, then you have the weatherman, then you have Requiem for a Heavyweight, then you have uh, Graveyard, Graveyard Shift. Yeah. And then, right. right. And then, honestly, I mean, you have, like like you said, the Cam Kennedy strip, the first time Cam Kennedy does art for for Dredd, and it's, it's beautiful art, but it's a one, mm -hmm. it's a one part kind of a breather story, right? Yeah, yeah. But then it goes into Rumble in the Jungle after that, and honestly, on every read-through, I've had to take a break. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because I, like, my brain is just like, fool, yeah. done, yep. can't keep going right now. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the thing that I think's really interesting uh, that make that I also think makes Dread very unique this way is you and I know from like Baxter building read throughs or read throughs of the Avengers or even I think when we've dipped into early comics like M Marvel Comics for me for a you know, started that idea of like, oh, it's you know, it's all one epic interconnected story and and it's not like if you read the first 40 issues of the Fantastic Four, like most of them are, you know, they're not written in a way that's designed to be read all at one go. But the thing that I think is so funny and neither sort of in a way is kind of what you're saying are these dread stories. But what I find different is, is that the early Marvel stuff, things just felt inconsistent tonally inconsistent like it's like it's not necessarily the same artist or it's not the same inker or stan can't even remember what the hell bruce banner's name is supposed to be or it just feels everything is sort of um uh ramshackle of, yeah it's ramshackle and and sort of pieced together on the fly and yet there's a certain ridiculous like oh it's all feels you know, part of something bigger and organic and blah, blah, blah. And if you're young enough, you believe the hype. And then Marvel goes to great lengths to try and kind of make that feeling real. What's amazing to me about this volume of Dread or even the past two or three is these are not pieces that are meant to, like you said, be read one after the other right next to each other sort of in isolation. I don't think anyone's really thinking of collections in quite that way yet. And, mm -hmm. and yet what's amazing to me is this, this volume feels totally consistent. It just also feels overwhelming. You know, it's not, it's, it's, it's a different feeling. It's not, it's not kind of like, uh, for me when I'm reading early Marvels and it's kind of like, Oh, this is a hot dog. This is a poorly made hot dog. This is a corn dog. 
This is a rice cake in the shape of a hot dog. You know, it's dreads. The dread material here is very consistently and tonally of one thing. It's mm-hmm. just you're for me. I'm like, Christ, I have to I can't have enough another, you know, insanely great sauerkraut dog with extra mustard and doomsday pickles you know what i mean like i've got it i've i had six of these in a row i just have to recover before i can come back to it you know it just it literally feels overwhelming um but but like i said in in a in not in the way that early graphic novel or early comic book collections from this time or earlier feel you know no it's a it's a very specific kind of mm-hmm. it's honestly like reading and it does for for some reason this volume in particular is a very specific feeling and is a very specific feeling of being overwhelmed yeah and is you know i just keep coming back to the idea of being horrified by it yeah and again i love these comics and these are yes. very good comics and these are you know enjoyable they're they're never less than enjoyable yeah and in many cases they're they're just fantastic examples of comics yeah but there is something continually disquieting and horrifying about you know what it is graham it's it's footsie this is the footsie volume that this volume made us feel footsie Right. Yeah, we we all future shock. Yeah. Yeah, we have future shock and overwhelmed and kind of yeah, just just like there's just too much. I mean, it's all amazing and you know, quote unquote good, but it is, it it's it's a it's a little it's a little insanity making. You know, I don't think that you could read this all in one go, and if you did, you'd kind of be a little fucked up for a couple of days afterwards. So yeah, um, yeah. But and it's weird to say that as like a huge compliment. I'm like, there's your pull quote. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rebellion, did you hear? Jeff got the pull quote in just around the hour mark. For you don't have to wait two hours. Exactly. I guess that brings us all to kind of graveyard shift, which is sort of the the the. the... It's it's kind of the heart of the book, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the, the graveyard shift. It's a very simple idea. Mm-hmm. The Graveyard Shift is a seven-part story that takes place over one night of in Mega City One. Yes, where the judges are working overnight. That's it. That's the gimmick. Yep, and it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just it's such a smart story. Uh, well, it, it's not the story; it's part of it. Mm-hmm. It's such a smart structure. Because it allows Wagner and Grant to do like very short stories and, and long stories and and, and world building mm-hmm. all at once, you know, like you you get the you get like super fast jokes. Mm-hmm. Dread Dread and the other judges put down like a, a, a gang, like a, a gang of, of criminals or grand citizens because of course they are and dread turns to uh, i think it's hershey and and, and another uh, judge and is like okay because i'm the senior judge you guys have to do the paperwork <laughs> and the hershey immediately turns to the judge like i'm the senior judge so you have to do the paperwork yeah like it's, a, it's like a two-panel joke right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you get that you get serial killers you get you get futsy again you get like citizens who are just losing it because they live in a crazy world yeah you get 
sequences that are literally just people reporting different crimes at the same time. Mm-hmm. And there's no fault in the crimes, but it's just those crimes are being committed. You get a number of captions updating continuously the number of casualties. Yes. You know? And and one of the things about this, and again, we get back to me just being obsessed with the horror of Mega City One, is the number of suicides. Yes. By part three, they they you know, one of the captions is Elsewhere, the crime rate is escalating rapidly. On average, there are now 18 ARVs, 97 serious assaults, four murders, zero, like 0.05 riots, and 178 traffic offenses every minute. There is now one suicide every 45 45 seconds. seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's something in the structure of just like, this is what happens. Mm-hmm. Where you manage to get like small stories and big, like a city block collapses. Yes, there is like block war and a city block collapses, but you get almost as much drama out of can dread save a kid from falling off a ledge. Yeah, you know, it it manages to expand Mega City One and uh, sort of make the drama more intimate at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know that. That it just feels masterful. Yeah, yeah. It 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 is. It's pretty great because it's such a. Um, it's it's almost like this volume, or almost like any volume of the Dread Case Files in miniature. And so, but of course, because it's packed with so much detail, it doesn't it doesn't feel like a miniature or a micro thing at all. It becomes you know, almost sensory overload. I did want to mention one of the things that's great that they tuck in there is at one point, um, Dredd sees uh, someone who runs from him. So he's, of course, you know, some sort of lawbreaker and he stops him and finds bite marks on the guy and notices that he's got these crazy pointed teeth, the vile teeth. And so there's, there's bite fights going on. So, after Requiem for a Heavyweight, before the Super Bowl, before the amazing one-part story where... About bingo? About bingo, where Dred's like, we will never be able to stamp out the disease that is bingo, which is brilliant. There's a super acerbic taste take on sports in this volume overall as sort of a weird leitmotif. Um, well, especially because... Uh... Dave, the orangutan, that's right. First comes to public notice because he humiliates sports forecasters. Yeah, because he can pick the the winners. So yeah, it that too is tied to sports and gambling are such a huge thing. Like that's such a core of society. Is you know we're here. We're one of the ways that people bond is over sports. Sports is tied to gambling. Gambling's tied to crime. It's all so inextricably woven and. This gets, you know, just shown in three and a half pages, like even Dinky by, you know, it's not even a full prog, but Dread pulls over a kid is like, how long have you been? How long you've been biting, son? He's like a couple of weeks now. So, of course, the judges set up a sting and and break into an illegal bite pit where you've got two guys who have their hands tied behind their backs and are biting into each other and it's really grotesque and brutal. Like it's weird, like it's comical, but it's also not, it is so dark. It's, it somehow 
just manages to get where they want, where they're just spinning that coin quickly between, um, you know, hilarious and, and grotesque. And it, and it's literally right after that, that you do get that thing of like dread being like as senior judge, I'm detailing you two to handle the paperwork and Lovell's like, ah, dread. And then Hershey turns around like that joke follows up right on top of something that is a joke, but is also kind of, but a completely different kind of joke. You know well, what I mean? One of the things that's so great about the graveyard shift as well is it by treating everything with the same matter of fact tone. Yeah. Everything achieves the same level of importance. Mm. Like you have mm-hmm. you have blocks collapsing. Yeah. You have the you know, the biting fights. Yeah. You have like a spaceship destroying the spaceport because it crashes into it yes uh you you know you have block mania part two yeah which is almost a subplot mm-hmm. you have you know a hungry alien has escaped from the netherworlds exhibition yes 17 people and it is one panel yes you know contaminated black market foods recycling at the the resic plant mm-hmm. you know it's it all just and the serial killer like yeah. all happen at the same time and all are treated with the same level of importance but also dread in this storyline is fascinating to me mm-hmm. you have dread literally essentially jumping off a building save a kid mm-hmm. saying you know as as when one judge's life becomes more important becomes too important then he can't be a judge anymore that's right right but you also have dread like fucking up his shoulder and the robot picks that is like take it easy and he's like take it easy in this city yeah which feels like it's his his matter of fact tone is reflected by the way that this storyline reflects everything in it mm-hmm. um but also there's something about that that again makes mega city one seem like this more believable place Right. There's more grand place. Right. Where even the characters sort of realize how ridiculous it is, but also just take it in the stride. Right. Which which is and in that weird way is is precisely the urban response. You know what I mean? Like uh, like the the epitome of the New York like ah what are you going to do it's the craziest city in the world but I love it here. You know you sort of take out the I love it here. And it's like that well-developed sense of the absurd that every urban dweller has, but it's but it's amped up. I'm tempted to say that the thing that, that the other thing that's amazing about the graveyard shift is it uh, unlike the other stories where like you said dread barely appears or participates, this is this is a a night in the life of mega city one but it is also a night in the in, in the life of, life dread. of dread yeah yes yeah and... dread, dread is actually more central to this storyline mm-hmm. than he is to a number in this volume yeah and so i i feel in a way that the graveyard shift is very much we finally get a chance to see mega city one through dread's eyes in a way mm-hmm. you know yeah and it's, it's a character piece, but the characters are Dread and Mega City One. Exactly, exactly, and 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 so Dread, in many ways, through the indirect thing, like you said, with that thing about the shoulder, or what he says when he jumps in and saves the baby, like it's all about the graveyard shift, and it's all about Mega City One. But it sho- it shows you so much about Dread, like so much of Dread makes more sense in a way in this context 
because he's always the guy who's kind of like, oh, it's, you know, it's a crazy world. And, and essentially that idea of you always have to make choices that are, you know, on the one hand, saving the most innocence uh, as possible. But, you know, I don't know if it's in this story or in one of the other stories in the volume, but I think when they do a crime sweep in here at one point, they're like, but we're innocent. And he's like, there's no, there are no innocence. There's just varying degrees of guilt, you know? Mm-hmm. And after reading the graveyard shift, you're like, okay, you understand where, how that viewpoint can actually happen in a way. Cause it is, it's like, it's like the people who, you know, the, the people who drive ambulances or ER uh, shift nurses who usually end up with an incredibly jaundiced view of the world, but, you know, of course, taken to this ridiculous extreme. That being said, Graham, did you laugh during Graveyard Shift uh, at all? Because um, there's that one point where, like, the for me, where there was a couple of points where I'm like, oh, Jesus, this is so horrible. And then I would just laugh. Like, the guy who, who yells out, Carol Monroe forever. And they're like, go get him, Jonesy. And he swings off, a, you know, during the block war, he swings off a rope and smacks into a wall and hits with a loud splat, you know, and then just falls presumably to his death. Like, it's so dumb, but I laughed. The number of times where I laughed at the same time, I was like, oh, Jesus, this is horrible. Uh, happened a lot throughout this volume, but in its most concentrated form for me in the graveyard shift. Now you see, I didn't find the. I I find it funny, but not laugh out loud funny. Uh-huh. There's there's a lot in there that I I uh, that I appreciate uh-huh. as opposed to laughed at, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I I the funnier parts for me are other stories in this volume, like the arsenic and old lace right. uh, thing. Yeah. Is 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 funnier to me. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's not. It, but it, for all of the horror of the graveyard shift, and the graveyard shift is in many ways a horror story. Mm-hmm. Like if you actually. Like, it doesn't read as one. Mm-hmm. It reads almost as like a workplace drama, or but right. not even a drama. Like it does kind of read as a workplace comedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like for all the stakes that are happening, there's something pleasant. It's not the right word, but it doesn't feel as tense as as other stories in this volume. Mm. Did you did you think it was? Uh, like I, I never felt that. I never felt the sense of of danger or or this the scope of other stories in this volume it's funny i i think that i did because of the way once once the black war is fought broken out between saint Clair and uh carol monroe like the stupidity amps up but also a lot of the brutality like there's just shots like there's that panel um where the mob blitzers have carried out a shock attack on a, a and it's just it's like being inside the playboy bunny club and people are being shot up um i i guess there was just a just a level of the numbers did get to me the brutality the the idea of seventy thousand people died like there's a like you said, it's almost in a way a workplace comedy because the the story ends with, uh, you know, kind of a punchline um, to me, which is, of course, after getting through the entire night, like dread 
and everyone else on the graveyard shift goes and sleeps in a sleep machine for 10 minutes and then they return to duty, which just seems insane, right? Like after every, after all seven parts of it, you're just like, oh, right. Like that's the pu- the punchline is like, okay, now to do it all over again. Yeah, it, and, and, you know, honestly, without a break. Yeah, after like, 10 it, you know, minutes, you they, know. Well, they, they introduced the sleep machines to the very first episode of the in this book. Uh-huh. Uh, which is really funny because I've just recently read um, Trifecta again. Mm. And sleep machines are an integral plot point to that mm. book. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that, like, this is the first time they get introduced. And it's strange to have that moment of, like, well, of course, because by the time Trifecta comes along, they've been around for 25 years. Right, right. But it's just odd to be like, oh, shit, yeah, they're just showing up here for the first time. But it's so strange to think that even though the judges feel like they've had eight hours of sleep. right. Have been off the streets for ten minutes. Yeah, they have had that night, and they've been off the streets for ten minutes, and then they go back out to do it again. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we talked about being overwhelmed. Like, just that concept is overwhelming. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It it that that little punchline to it really adds to this idea of uh just the just the 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 grind. You know, um, yeah, but, but like the funniest things of graveyard shift are 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 the the grim humor. Like the mm-hmm. funniest thing for me in graveyard shift is the start of part two, where there's the jumper, there's mm-hmm. the suicide who jumps off the building, and Dread is basically it's like I need an H wagon, and then the guy dies, and Dread's just like, yeah, you know, he just clean up squad yeah clean up squad right yeah no there's i don't know i mean there's the stuff like you said the the bit with hershey i thought was pretty funny the i don't know i found no, there's, I there's funny stuff yeah. it's just not if i love funny yeah well yeah i the, for, they, for me to to me you when i just, say just when harsh. i say laugh out loud yes exactly i'm a horrible person in a way but there's also the it's the to me it's also the laughter of surprise. Like it's a little bit of the laughter of shock. Like, oh my yeah, god. No, no and, and actually this volume as a whole, I think, has a lot of that. Yeah. Has a lot of like the taboo laughter. Mm-hmm. They're just like so. ha, ha, what? Ha, ha. Yes. Yeah, very, very much so. Um Graveyard Shift also has like the scariest line of the whole book. Mm. Where uh someone says to Dredd, it's a free city, and Dredd's response is the only freedom you got creep is the freedom to do what you're told. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and it's, is, you know, it's completely glossed over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like nothing's made of it, but it's the most honest and scariest line of the book. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, it's uh, it's it's an amazing little masterpiece. Part of me really does think that it's sort of uh, well, it's seven parts at what four or five pages. pages. Yeah, so it's it's pretty. It's a weird length like it's 49 pages part of me is like i feel like they should just make this like the judge dread free comic book day book every year you know what i mean because it's, it's weird to see the number of seven part stories in this because curse uh cry of the werewolf is seven parts as well yes and seven parts is an odd length mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well i you think... know because it's kind of longer than what you expect like a regular dread story to be yes but it's also like you know when you think of a dread epic, you're thinking of twenty six parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so you're like this is a a medium length story, I guess. It's right. a really odd thing. Yeah. But 
but it being seven parts or you know if it had been 10 for example it being longer than like four parts i guess is what i'm saying right adds to the feeling of being overwhelmed of exhaustion yes of of the idea that like honestly the night doesn't end i mean yes obviously it does but yeah so many things happen mm-hmm. there's so much violence and destruction and and craziness yeah. to one night and it's never said in the story because to point it out would would miss the point yeah but this is a regular night yeah i guess anyone right right exactly. like there was nothing special about this night right right Exactly. Even even the atypical disasters, there's just a different atypical disaster happening the next night. So it's yeah, no, it's it's an it's an amazing little piece of work that way because it is. Oh, and I did want to say one of the things that I think is also great about this volume is, and and one of the the real strengths of the weekly installment, six or seven pages, is that you're kind of always kept on your back foot as a reader. You never know when these stories are going to wrap up in a way that admittedly is a different experience when you're reading them every week in, in 2000 AD, but there is still kind of that feeling of like, how long is this going to go on? You yeah, don't yeah, know. You, you know how long this collection is. You yeah. just don't know how long each strip is going to run. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the stories are able like, by by being able to jam so much into a seven part story and seven parts being like you said not a mega prog but clearly not a one or two parter either it's it's just crazy making and and in this volume where there's so many different parts and different lengths like i want you know i want us to sort of stick on the graveyard shift but there's a story in here called highwayman with steve dylan art that i was like okay this is going to be a five part yeah it starts like it's it's going to go on for a while right yeah if only because what what is he called captain strange and his weird boys yes are are the the pirates which is such a great name yeah like he he announces himself like captain strange and the weird boys and you're like oh these guys are going to stick around yes well, I and you don't. even get a close-up shot of him. Like, he's done in tight close-up with a full, practically a full page. And you're like, okay, they're not going to waste that kind of real estate in him if he's not going to be. And you kind of have that feeling of like, oh, here comes one of those, like, classic cartoonish baddies that Dredd's going to have to, you know, um, fight for, like, five or six stories. And it's over in four pages or something. Like, it's yeah. Yeah. ridiculously short. Like and I, and also like it's over so quickly because he kills himself. Yes, <laughs> like by accident. He doesn't yeah. mean to. Yep. But there's something great about wrongfooting the reader there as well. Yeah. Like he appears and he's like, "Ha I'm Captain Strange, and here's my weird boys, and we are pirates." Yeah. And like an accident leads him to be hung. Yes. Yeah. So I really f- feel yes, hanged. That's right. Thank you, Graham. Good. The the grammar. Uh, hounds in the audience definitely appreciate you catching that uh yeah no that this this volume is about chaos isn't it i mean and it literally catches that feeling of you know like you said either a character accidentally kills himself in the story that you thought was going to be six parts is suddenly one part and then suddenly the story about the orangutan who picks sports scores suddenly turns into a 
you know, four-part political epic. The thing about the werewolves is seven parts. Like everything, and and one night, one single night in, uh, in Mega City One, which has enough stories that people could have blown out into, you know, oh yeah, that could, this that could whole be a volume worth of storytelling. Yeah. yeah, completely, and it all gets sort of pushed together in you know, forty-nine pages is. It's it's just you're kind of the, the the again this feeling of you can't catch your bearings and chaos is is just running rampant. You don't know you you never know what you're going to catch around the next page or how long whatever's happening to you is going to happen. It's uh it's it's a surprisingly immersive experience. It, it um, is. I, I, I want to come off of Graveyard Shift for a sec to talk about that a bit more. Yeah. The Citizen Snark mm. three-parter mm-hmm. is a great example of that mm-hmm. because it starts off as a crazy storyline. Mm-hmm. Or it's a, not even that. It starts off as like, you know, Mega City 1 citizens are wacky. Right. Turns into a crazy storyline and then turns into like a serial killer storyline. Yeah. In three episodes. Mm-hmm. You know, and it is just continually like... You think you know what the story is, but you don't. Yeah. And yet it feels organic throughout. Mm-hmm. Like all of it feels, you know, continually upping the wacky quotient, sure. Mm-hmm. But in such a way that it works and it doesn't feel forced mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel that at any point Wagner and Grant have lied to you as a reader. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no point where you're like, oh, they pretended it was this sort of story, but really it's this sort of story. No, right. it all just feels like this is the story. Yes. And the story is going to be weird. And, you know, just just go on with that. Yeah. To the point where immediately after that, you get the haunting of Sector House 9. Right. Which is an outright horror story. It's a ghost story. Yes. But it's not. But you think it's a ghost story because why shouldn't it be at this point? Yes. No. In fact, one of the things that I both I I doubly appreciated was maybe two or three parts into the haunting of Sector House Nine, which I truly loved, and I also think is just a fabulous idea. Like I'm sure someone has done a haunted station police station house story, but I don't know of one, and it's a it's just a brilliant idea i think but i really was after about the second or third part i was like okay is this going to end up being like i really was like okay this is the return of judge death like we've all you it, know it, it helps that brett Hewins sells the horror in this oh, story so like, well the, the art in this volume is actually great like mm-hmm. you've got cam kennedy's first art and he fucking knocks out of the park the cam yeah. kennedy art in that one in suspect is so great yes like steve dylan's art is amazing yep uh but ewan's art in the haunt the haunting of sacred house nine is just great it really is like it's, it's he sells the horror wonderfully there's a scene where a corpse is possessed mm-hmm. no, quote-unquote possessed it turns out that he's not but let's ignore that for now <laughs> And he turns around and talks to him and he has two mouths. Yes. And like that panel is so great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and in that same in that same uh storyline, there's a bit where Dredd is talking to another judge and all you see of Dredd is his badge. Mm-hmm. And all you see is the part where it says Dredd, which is such a smart storytelling choice. Yes. Yeah. I thought like, so it's, too. It's so well done. Mm-hmm. It, it's it like Ewan's art in this is is really, really amazing. Yeah, yeah, I thought so too. And Really, um, just 
just incredibly, un, it's perhaps unsurprisingly, just audaciously confident in a way that that play that suits the story so well. It um, he, he sells the the horror aspect of yeah. it really really well actually. Yep. Yeah, like he does. He Ewan's always kind of had. This is going to sound really strange understatedly overstated emotions yes like his characters are either have no emotion or like you know are in incredible shock Mm -hmm. like that that's basically his two settings but it works so well in this story yeah oh so much so so much so i guess thinking about it now i'm like "Eh, oh right this is kind of the haunting of hell house but done slightly differently it's it's i i actually loved the haunting of sector house nine because it the werewolf story was fun and very fun in a like it's always great when you've got your hero who's like a figure of authority turn into a werewolf kind oh, of. Oh yeah, it's it's you know wolf I mean? like ten yeah, years earlier. Exactly, you know? exactly. It's just just a great idea. But but the haunting of Sector House Nine is just fabulous because it is a you know as you've pointed out they've built a world in which you can drop a horror story like this in and. And it just it just works so perfectly. Like, and well, then it, it and then also you get this it also is art. better than Cry of the Werewolf for me because Cry of the Werewolf only really starts working for me when it gets out in the yes. other world building aspects. Right. Like, I like that it introduces the sleep machines, but it only really comes alive for me when you talk about the Undercity mm-hmm. and when Dread has to go on the trip to the Undercity. But you also see the other judge who took the long walk. Right. right? Yep. That's when it comes interesting. Whereas yeah. Haunting of Sector S9 hits the ground running. Yes. Like from episode one, you're like, what is going on here? This is great. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it and it starts off with a couple of jokes on that double page spread. You know, just the the whole thing about the them noses didn't belong to me, then why were you picking them? And you know, the the robo dog that, you know, gets his owner in trouble, the lost robo spaniel or whatever. And you're like, oh ha ha ha. And then on the next page it's 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 just a haunted house story. It's it's um I think once you I don't know, it, it the the malleability of Dread's universe to be twisted into anything and still recognizably be dread, I feel is is such a strong element in this volume um, that that that's the part that's really you know inspiring. Like we've seen it in, um, I guess in pre- we've definitely seen it in previous case file volumes, but this is the one where maybe because with all the shorter pieces, the speed really picks up on it, and on top of which the the changes within the stories from page to page can change up so much. It's a, it's it, like you said, the craft achievement is really wonderful. I do also want to mention on a craft achievement. One of the things that's fabulous. I mentioned the Super Bowl two parter. One of the things that I love about it uh, is the fact that um, in the story of Dave, the orangutan who becomes mayor, one of the things that the orangutan does is he, um, outpicks the sport experts as to who's going to win the Super Bowl because everyone picks the what is it the Rottweilers over the rats or what is it it starts with an R but it's you know they the the team that was picked as the faves ends up losing oh what is it it's um 
He's going to the radiators. The radiators end up losing. And what's wonderful is the Super Bowl story, which happens several installments later, shows you why they lose. Like the reason. I, did you I, notice I've, that? Yeah, but I've got to be honest. I think things are running out of order at that point because the the Dave story actually makes reference to, as longtime Judge Dredd readers will know, the Super Bowl doesn't go as planned, mm-hmm. which they wouldn't know because that hasn't happened yet. Like that story runs like six weeks later. Okay. Yeah, so I, I think I think it's possible that things are actually running out of order at that point. Well, e- either way, it still works. Oh, it's, it's wonderfully it's such fun. Yeah, it's yeah, such fun to like stealth Rashomon. Right, thing. right. You know, we're like, oh, okay. So those two stories are both like involved with each other, right? And also, it's funny to me that Dread is involved with both sides of that. Ultimately. Yes, he's involved in both sides of that, and also Super Bowl, which is a two-part story in and of itself, is part of a smaller mini arc where Dread has a new rookie, Judge Decker who's in the process of being tested by him, which we've seen before and isn't, is basically doing, you sort of see her evolution as a judge. She ends up being like, is she going to pass or not? Which is sort of the drive of it, but it's a drive that moves through the Super Bowl stories, which again, tie in with Dave. And then it also connects with bingo. And the finally, when you get to the making of a judge, which is just a big action piece. So the stories themselves, even though there there's like three stories there, if you hook it into the larger story of judge Decker being tested as a rookie and coming out, you know, what happens to her. And yet, even as that's happening, it's tying into the Dave story. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I'm just so impressed with that. Like, again, that's that weird organic feel and flavor to it where the the things run together in a way that, um, I don't know, it, it just is so much at simultaneously like and unlike the way that subplots were being handled in American comic books at the time that it's it's a it's a it's an amazing I sort of feel like you know Charles Darwin like sitting on an island being like look this is how they handle the subplot over here on this island you know it's like <laughs> and it's a completely satisfying little thing with Judge Decker and of course I'm like but you know when it finishes I kind of have this thing of like boy I can't wait to see that character again you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. When because when that finished, I was like, "Do we ever see Decker again?" Like, I don't remember Decker being a character. Mm. But at the end of this like mini arc, mm-hmm. you feel like she's a massive character. Yes. Dread calls her his best rookie. Yes, like she specifically says in the end, like you know, the most important book I had at the academy was your playbook. Yes, so it feels like oh, you're you're definitely going to see her again. And also to the point where like if we've never seen her again. I want someone to bring her back. Well, yeah, of course. You know. Do you know what I mean? Like, if we've never, if no one has used Decker again since then, like, I want someone to bring Decker back now right. and show us what Decker looks like th- three decades later. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of great art in here. I also want to mention how much I loved the art uh, for the Switch by Jim uh, Bakey, which has that Bakey. amazing uh, double page opener. You know, complete with a judge getting shot and dread launching his motorcycle and crashing through a window. And it's just maximum 
insanity. And um, I should mention that uh, what's his name? Is it Kim Raymond who does yeah. uh, essentially the Judge Decker arc? Um, starts off with like a, an earlier piece that looks crazily like straight from the pages of the Case File Volume One, but by the end of doing the Decker art, you know, it's just it's really lovely. Like I didn't well, that's realize that's funny because you know that Wagner and Grant hate Raymond, right? No, do they? Yeah, they they apparently like are really really unhappy with Raymond's art and think that Raymond is like one of the worst Judge Dredd artists ever. That's so funny because I can Which see is it. Ironic because when you get to the nineties, there's genuinely some breathtakingly bad art right. in Judge Dredd. Right. For me, Raymond's art is fine. It's it's just I can see that it's not. It feels out of place with, for example, Ewan's Dylan. Yes. Even Bitty, you know, no, it, no. it feels much more mannered and, and much tighter. Yeah. Well, see, that's it. It's very much, uh, you know, Kim Raymond came out of like the newspaper strips, like heavily influenced by Modesty Blaze and, you know, drew a lot for the girls comics. And I guess part of the reason why, you know, unsurprisingly uh, ends up drawing Judge Decker, which is a female judge, in part because had drawn a lot of Misty and girls comics and things like that. And it goes on to draw judge Anderson, I think, you know? And so it's perhaps to me unsurprising that a, you can kind of see the modesty blaze influence, I think particularly on some of the, the faces, but also on, on Decker and Decker's body language. And for lack of a better term, you know, quote unquote femininity, you know, which again yeah, there's, is there's, there's an entire part where De like Decker removes the helmet. Like there's there's one of the stories yeah. within the deck mini arc where Decker is just going out without the helmet, and like you do, you see like the Romero influence in there a lot. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um, but it's but it, even before then, there's just kind of a weird like she's anyway. I I just like the art in this volume a lot, and it's very interesting. I didn't know that Wagner and Grant didn't like Raymond because at first I was like, eh, it's very off-putting. It feels very sort of like a throwback from where everything else is going. And like you said, considering some of the other stuff in here, but I really I really liked it. I uh, especially because it in part because unlike it just being a one-parter that comes and goes, it kind of gets to do you know, four or five stories in a row, the way, the way that yeah. a lot of these people do, like it's clear by this point in 2000 AD, the editors have figured out a way, or at least maybe because there's no mega arcs in here that there's, you know, they're trying to schedule like art, like arcs in advance. Yes. So like Ron Smith gets like six issues and then like, you know, Ian Gibson gets, you know, two issues. And yeah, I, I would say Ian Gibson's art is, is the problem art for me in this volume? Mm -hmm. Gibson's it's, never been, as you know, I'm not a huge fan. Although I kind of did like it in uh, Rumble in the Jungle. Some of the scale stuff that was going on there, I liked a lot. But his figures seem weirdly too cartoony. Yeah, for me. Yeah, um, especially actually in the the uh, the outer space slum yes. story. Yeah, did the yeah. outer space. And also, he, he draws an impressively off-model dread. Yeah, like it's almost a point of pride. 
how off model and straight, <laughs> yes. how Gibson straight is. It's, it's kind of amazing. But yeah. no, you're right. Like we're, it's a, you know, these books just look lovely mm-hmm. as, as a whole. Mm-hmm. And here, I think we're, you know, when you've got so much Dylan, because Dylan's actually in this book a lot. Yeah. And and Ewan's and Bakey, it feels like we're into another generation of dread artists. If that makes sense. Mm. Like, I feel like for, you know, at least for the first five five volumes, like, it was McMahon, mm-hmm. you know, and to a lesser extent, Boland. Well, and then, yeah. like, Ron Smith comes in, Ron Smith does an awful lot of it. Yes. And Ron Smith is still, like, all through this volume and, and is, like, Ron Smith is, is on dread for, for years to come. Yes. Um, but there's something about Dylan's approach and Ewan's approach, which feels very much of a different school of art. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I it's uh, it's interesting to me. I do feel that it changes. I kind of felt like this volume had a weird, because uh, Ascara's not Ascara barely shows up in here. Of course, he's only here for Requiem for a Heavyweight, and then he's gone. Um, but uh, but the amount of work that Ron Smith does in here, I kind of feel like Smith is a and it. it continues to sort of move in and out of being like a, a either a very heavy influence on this era of dread or else a it's definitely the baseline let's put it that way and so everyone else seems to manage to be able to jump and build off of it if they if they if they want to or they choose to but Dylan like I love Dylan's work in here. The werewolf stuff is great. And the highwayman story that, clo- uh, not the highwayman, the wreckers that close this is terrific. There's just, like I said, a ton of great work and a ton of people doing a lot of great black and white work. Um, this is a great volume. I think that for people who love, who love comic book art, I think this volume is a great volume to look at because it's 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 almost like a drawing assignment. You're all drawing the same characters. You're all drawing the same location, and you're all drawing in black and white. Here's how people handle each of those assignments. You know, like yeah. I just love uh, how much Brett Ewing's work in the Haunting of Sector House Nine is so hits the blacks so heavily and oh, so there, lushly. There's some great panels where he's essentially drawing dread and negative shapes yeah right like get rid of dread's outline at some points against the black background which is shocking to see mm-hmm. right because mm-hmm. no one has done that before mm-hmm. and so when you see ewans do it 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 does just like you stop for a moment on that panel yeah yeah absolutely and so no, it's true like you, you compare like the the, the art in this mm-hmm. like to you know think two volumes back where you've got Boland, McMahon, and Iskera. Right. Like, look at those two books and go, this is all the same characters, it's all the same location. Yeah. And for them, you know, realistically, these are roughly the same era. Mm-hmm. And look at the variety of approaches towards drawing this. Exactly. Exactly. So in that sense, even though I'm not a fan of Gibson, uh, I've sort of found Gibson's work here to make, sort of make the most sense in a way, because... Because there's so much variety in this volume uh, that I'm like, yeah, like you said, the fact that his dread is so off model, like it's great. He practically looks like a Saturday morning cartoon character. And yet within the within the larger context of all this stuff, it 
I I ended up embracing that much more so than I thought I would. I have a few questions to sort of start wrapping this up. Sure. Uh, question number one, which is an odd one. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the depiction of Dread or the Judges is different in this book? Uh, you know, it's tough because I feel like this depiction seems more in line with the way you talked about them in the last episode, which when you were talking about it in the last episode was more when I was like, huh, I don't know if I see it. So I'm a little confused on that point because I'm like, no, <laughs> this is totally the way Graham was talking about it last month. So because for this volume, there's a couple of points where I'm like, that's far kinder than I expected. Mm. Dread letting the dinosaurs go. Yes. And the end of the bingo story, because they let the bingo players go. Yes. And they essentially go, well, they're addicts. Mm-hmm. You can't blame what they do on them. Mm-hmm. They're, addic- they're addicted. Right. And that seems not just too kind for the judges, but honestly kinder than our law enforcement officials today. Oh, I- you- I, I, and I, at the time, I, yeah, absolutely. To the point where I was like, "That seems odd. Like right. that. That seems that seems too kind." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which which was yeah, it, it it was it was surprising. It was surprising enough that I like like I said, I noticed that, and I was like, "Hmm, that's weird." Yeah, no. For me, the the moment with pyromania, uh, where. Everyone's pissed at dread about the pies and also feeling like this is like they're like, we got to do something about it. And he's the only one who it seems simultaneously resigned and indifferent to it in a way that I found fascinating. Because I think one of the other things that you've talked about in uh, earlier episodes of Drock is the idea of dread being... Well, I, I guess, yes, Dread being different. This is the first time where I really felt like Dread was different. Like there's a level at which Dread is exceptional, but he's exceptional in that way that they always stress that the judges are exceptional. Like there's yes, very... he's the most judgy judge. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. He's sort of the perfect product of the system. And this volume was the first time where I saw things that almost felt like Wagner and Grant are like, hey, you know what? He's his own guy. He is not there's some there's more to him than maybe maybe he is. It's not that he's just the judgiest judge. Maybe it's the fact that Joe Joe Dredd is exceptional because dot dot dot. Because you do have a few things where in the middle of in in seven volumes into the judgiest judge and a guy whose face you never see and everything where the emphasis is all sort of very much this idea of he's just the product of the system. There is that that's when they sort of all, but put that little glimmer in there of like, Oh yeah, but not necessarily like, you know, like maybe you can't always guess or know where dread is going to go because dread and because dread's human and you can't always figure that out. Like you can make really depressing generalizations about people uh, and they're almost always going to be true, but not always. And I, 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 that was, that did strike me as a difference for, for dread this way. But again, 
you'd also remarked on it earlier, so I just figured that I'm a very poor reader, so or previously and had noticed. <laughs> second second wrap up. Um I'm assuming that the graveyard shift is your favorite story in this volume. I don't know, actually. I really don't know. Because Graveyard Shift is is an amazing is an amazing story and it's an amazing achievement and in awe of it, but I'm not entirely sure that I enjoyed it as much as I would like. You know what I mean? Like I honestly thought that I was going to end up marking again something dumb, something like the Weatherman that was simultaneously stupid but also felt like a mission statement or Sure, yeah. You know, or just in terms of enjoyable craft, The Haunting of Sector House 9 was just feeling like this volume was very much uh, like this is going to be a bunch of good, you know, dumb, good comics. Like Haunting of Sector House 9 was my favorite good, dumb comic story in it. Graveyard Shift is amazing, is amazing. But I also, and like I said, I'm like, yeah, they should turn it into a, you know, collect it and give it out to free comic book day every, uh, you know, year. And yet at the same time, I'm sort of like, but it's also kind of a little, it's kind of like that corn dog that I got sick on and I'm not sure that I want to come back to it. I, I assume it would absolutely be your favorite. It, it is and became so, the, it became so even more the more I read the book. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like the first time through, I was like, "Oh, this is fun," and the second time through, I thought, "Oh, this is really impressive." Yeah. And then third time through, I was like, "This is the book. Like this, this is what this is the what the book is. Right. This is the heart of the book. This, this is the the most important thing in the book." Mm-hmm. Um, however, something else that gained uh, precedence in in my affections as I kept reading the book was the Hunting of Sector House Nine as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it like the more I read it, and the, the more I was just like, I'm really appreciating what this is doing. Yeah, this this is like a really smart, fun story that also really plays with the expectations of the reader at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so so definitely, Graveyard Shift and Haunting of Sector House Nine um, are up there. If I had to pick, and if I had room for a top three. I like I said I would throw in the weatherman I think I don't know the more I go through it the more I'm like oh no they're all pretty good there's all a lot of them that I enjoy if you had to pick a top 3 Graham how would would it be graveyard shift haunting of sector house 9 and then Citizen Snork for you, or is Citizen Snork it just more of a talking point? Snork, even though I don't really. It's a weird thing. Like every single time I read it, I was like, I don't think I like Citizen Snork. <laughs> yet it might actually. You know what it is? It's Bob's Law. Bob's uh, yeah. Law is probably going to be yep. my third one. That that's the one that I think I was going to pick as well because Bob Bob's Law is especially since it's six or seven pages and is a single parter. It's kind of it's perfect. It's just perfect. <laughs> Their one parters in this are astonishingly strong. Yes, yeah, like that. That the high society, the slum parter one. That's, um, like you said, kind of a little too grim to actually like, and a little too misanthropic. But it's perfect, and it's one part. Your yeah. um, arsenic and old lace, old lace, house on, which is what's arsenic. it called? The house on runners walk is a great story. Yeah, and it's one part. Like you know, pyromania 
is a one part story. You know, uh, it's just bingo. If you take out the other stuff with Decker, like, yeah, it it's, works it's perfectly. It's a great one parter. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, we say this every single time, but Wagner and Grant are really fucking on fire. Yeah, they really are. I mean, considering we've been saying it for, for something that accounts for like three to five years now of, of publications, that's stunning. That is and, a, and a weekly comics. Yeah. Well, I, I actually, Grant, this is probably something that we should think about. I, I, I don't think we should necessarily discuss it, but it is worth positing. Uh, as people who listen to Wait What? No, uh, Graham and I are both huge fans of Jack Kirby. Kirby, more or less, in his later years, was cranking them out almost weekly, was fast mm-hmm. enough. And, and here we also get weekly comics, where that idea is like, things just accelerate. And if you're good enough and talented enough and craftsman enough, and you've got good collaborators, things just end up being like the it's it becomes a stunning achievement and i do wonder if maybe there is something to the idea of the faster you can make comics the better there's just something about it where it ends up building a a cumulative power to them but for also for the creator the what comics do so well that sort of juxtaposition of words you know words and pictures but also in a way sort of the conscious and subconscious brain and the high art and the low art like you just you don't have time to separate things out into nice fancy cups and so it sort of all ends up in one big pot and what ends up being you know it either ends up being a ridiculous god-awful mess or you start getting stuff like this that is just um is is breathtaking in its in what feels like i don't know it's generosity i guess i'm trying to think what the right term is the fecundity i guess it's funny i'm thinking of you know a creator who who you have a oh i know it's complicated the the tom king line yes he talks about like if you just Basically, you, you write so much and so fast that you basically have to get over yourself. Yeah, right. And you get to the point where your subconscious takes over. You're just like, what's going on with me this week? And Yeah. Um, yeah. I, but, but interestingly enough, I don't think that's what either Kirby or Wagner and Grant are doing. No. Because they're, they're not writing about themselves. No. I mean, Kirby was, to actually a large extent, is that he was really able to then like take it into – you know, astonishing realms. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, King is pretty much, you know, sure he's writing Batman or Mr. Miracle or Adam Strange or whatever, but you can definitely draw the line between what he's writing and where he is himself. Right. Right? And Kirby, I think, is much more difficult. And honestly, with Wagner and Grant, I don't think they're writing about themselves at all. Well, but, right. Well, but I, yes, I, I agree. I think writing about what, I think a lot of them comes over in their writing. Exactly. And I but think I, that's what people would about say about themselves. Kirby. I think that's what people would say about Kirby as well, don't you think? That that it's just I think, I think there's maybe more of a line for mm-hmm. Kirby to 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 who he was and what he was going through. Mm-hmm. Um but it 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 does like the idea of you work so much and mm-hmm. at such a rate right that you basically burn through your self-consciousness. Right. 
Well, and it's it's part of what I love about, you know, Manga, of course, is is turned out at a very fairly high rate as well. And so you get to that similar points like, it'll, you know, you admittedly, there's a lot of formula propping up, you know, uh, a Shoujin uh, fight manga. But what people end up bringing to it ends up being being really delirious or ridiculous stuff because there's just that idea of like you kind of like there, you don't have time to discard any ideas. You just have to take every idea and more or less make it work. You know what I mean? And, and so I think that just ends up, it, it's just, it's just a fascinating, um, it, it, these, these couple of volumes end up making a good case for it. Although again, it, Wagner and Grant are working together. And so there's a lot of ways in which, collaboration also seems to be a huge secret to making comics work again separate and apart from the editors and all the fabulous artists that are doing the work on here you know so it's like yeah, but you're right Wagner and Grant as a as a collaborative entity yeah um I think are are have tapped into something that is honestly I think to this point better than what Wagner was doing himself I think so too I think so you know, too. I, uh, and, and you know, Wagner and Grant will continue to be a collaborative entity through, I think, Volume Eleven. Wow! Um, and you'll get to see how that evolves. We're we're our next truck. We're about to head into. I don't know if you ever read Douglas Wolk's Dread Re- uh, Dread Reckoning blog. No, Mm-mm. but Volume Eight is the first volume he says is disappointing. Mm. And I'm I'm curious whether we will agree. Right. Especially because Volume 8 includes infamously Wagner Grant's next mega epic that they got bored of and cut short. Oh, City of the Damned? Is City that... of the Damned. Right. In, mm-hmm. um, which I really like. Mm. I, I actually really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though you can see why they would get bored of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really really curious what you're going to make of it. I'm really curious what I'm going to make of it after reading this volume. Right. Because there's a lot of stuff here that feels like, especially Sector, uh, Haunting of Sector House 9, feels like a dry run for City mm. of the Dead. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, I'm I'm really actually excited hmm. to, to do the next volume. Well, I am too. I have to say this, this volume whew, was, was dizzying and a little overwhelming. I'm, I'm glad we're not recording the next drop next week. But um, exactly, talk about overwhelming. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, we're we're fine. We are, we are not Joe Dread. We can't take a ten minute uh, tour in the sleep machine and just come back and do another case file volume. So, um, I I I definitely need to recover. But it's a it's a good set. It's a good recovery, I should say. So this is when I'm going to tell everyone that there's going to be show notes for this episode up on witwhatpodcast.com or uh, some point on Monday. I always leave it vague, but let's call it some point on Monday just for my sanity. Again, <laughs> there's no sleep machine over here, friends. While you're waiting for that, though, there is Instagram.com forward slash witwhatpod. There is uh, we're on Tumblr, witwhatpod.tumblr.com. We are on Twitter at witwhatpodcast. Jeff has a Twitter at lazybastard at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. I am on Twitter at Graham M at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we are a Patreon-supported podcast. People like you make this very podcast possible. Jeff, tell everyone what they want. 
Yes. Well, everyone, you uh, the for listening to us for this many hours, uh, you have won the prize of getting to listen to us for more hours. Uh, and we are incredibly grateful that you uh, continue to do so and have done so through the 10 years that Graham and I have been recording podcasts together in the seven months that we've been doing Drock. And uh, Drock is a direct result of the fine people on Patreon who not only uh, support us with their ears, but uh, dig into their wallets a little bit and throw us a bit of the uh, their hard-earned Mega City One creds, um, uh, which helps uh, inspire us. And as I said, like a specific stretch goal, uh, Drock and our previous read-through, the first 416 issues of the Baxter Building, are a direct result of the support of those fine folk, including Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, to whom we are especially grateful for continuing support of the podcast, as well as uh, this space sector. Um, we appreciate it so much, Audrey. Uh, and we appreciate all of you people. Thank you. Thank you so much. Graham? I agree. We do appreciate you all so much. That sounded really insincere, even though we really do appreciate you. <laughs> uh, it's, guys, we've been, we've been recording for too long, clearly, when I mean to say something nice and it comes out completely insincere. <laughs> I'm, I'm very sorry. <laughs> we appreciate you a lot. And I'm just going to stop now. Jeff, it's a drug. You sing us out. I'm going to shut up. Uh, oh, uh, wait, before we do anything. We're back in two weeks with a wait what? That's right. Skip week next week. Uh, and then a wait what? Which feels like forever since we've, we all have so much comic gossip to talk about. Right, be ridiculous. We, the last one we did, which was two weeks ago, was Steve Engelhardt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So very atypical for us. Anyway. So, yes. Until next time. Um, Drock, you're under arrest, citizen. Report to the Isocubes. And we'll see you next time.